Welcome to Gridlock Break, a no-labels podcast featuring one-hour conversations with elected officials and thought leaders from across the political spectrum. Tune in weekly to hear insightful and nonpartisan perspectives on how America can solve our toughest problems. Today we'll hear from Dr. Michael Osterholm, Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota, and one of the country's top experts on the COVID-19 pandemic. Today he'll discuss the vaccine rollout and recent spikes in infections. Let's listen in. Uh, thanks, Nancy. I'm really uh, delighted to welcome uh, everyone here. This has been a uh, really a traumatic week since last Wednesday, and uh, um, we're, we're still there's still a lot of fear about what's going to happen, obviously, uh, because of these intelligence reports about Sunday at the state capitals and then next Tuesday at the inauguration. But I'm hopeful that uh, law enforcement will be more ready than before. And uh, I'm very proud of our No Labels um, um, members of Congress in the House and Senate who have come together in classic fashion uh, to respond really courageously and in a bipartisan way uh, to the crisis we're in the middle of. And uh, I must say that, uh, you know, it's at times like this when we see the worst of human nature that uh, people act heroically to show the best of human nature. I was really, uh, the, the announcement by uh, Lynn, Congresswoman Lynn Cheney that she's going to vote for impeachment is an act, you know, we're earning her a profile of courage. I mean, she's really Republican royalty, if I can put it that way, having run against her father in 2000. But, uh, you know, there whatever you think about them in terms of uh, uh, the differences of opinion we had, these are honorable people who, Love the country, the Constitution, and the law. So, and and Mitch McConnell has given uh, some interesting hopes um, in the last or today, really. So, uh, I I think that the the trauma may have brought us together, and uh, hopefully, we'll go on. No labels will certainly be pay, playing a large role in that, a constructive role. And I thank all of you for uh, helping us to do that. Um, in the meantime. Uh, the, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic goes on. And um, it's, it's really important. I know uh, President-elect Biden really wants to focus And uh, he will. So we are really grateful to have Dr. Michael Osterholm uh, with us today. Uh, I met Dr. Osterholm through, well, originally maybe through my Homeland Security Committee, but then through a, the Bipartisan Commission on Biodefense, which was formed in 2014. I co-chair with uh, uh, former Governor, Secretary of Homeland Security, Tom Bridge, and Dr. Osterhaus has met with us. He's been extremely helpful. You've probably all seen him on TV. Uh, he, he really is, uh, at this point, in this crisis, a, a national asset. And he's, he's very informed, very wise, uh, he's um, he's often uh, unfortunately appropriately pessimistic, and has warned us about what was coming. And more often than not, he's been right. He is a uh, professor. Matter of fact, I don't know of any case where he's been wrong. He's a professor at the University of Minnesota uh, uh, in public health. He also uh, teaches at the medical school. And he is the founding director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy uh, at the University of Minnesota. You can see, Mike, we have another 
uh, bond that ties us together. I am now the founding chairman of No Labels, and you are the founding director <laughs> of the... Anyway, um, I'm just going to turn it over to him, but two things I want to say. Uh, he authored a book that was published in 2017 and became a New York Times bestseller called, uh, and because I admire him and like him, I'm going to do a promo. Here it is. Uh, Deadly, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs. I mean, he was right on target with what was uh, coming. And uh, it's still very relevant and deserves to be read. But I just want to quote one sentence uh, from the beginning of the book in which Mike quotes a great uh, epidemiologist and uh, philosopher, Wayne Gretzky. You all remember Wayne. And Wayne said, a good hockey player plays where the puck is. A great hockey player plays where the puck is going to be. And uh, this book and Michael's work really had tried to get the country to where, where infectious disease was going to be before it struck us. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we didn't listen. So, uh, 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 Michael, uh, it's all yours. Talk about whatever you think we should know about. This is a lively, informed uh, group, and uh, they will have a bunch of questions, and we'll, we'll uh, close at about 8.30. All yours. Thank you again for being here. Well, thank you very much, Senator, for that very kind introduction. And let me just say that uh, you have been a real champion in this area for so many years. And uh, so many of us look up to you and respect and appreciate what you've done uh, in the way only you can do it. Uh, Nancy, thank you also for inviting me back. And Liz, I appreciate the opportunity. I do recognize the very special nature of this audience. It is, in fact, a very special audience, and it's a very special group. As I've shared with Liz just earlier tonight, uh, this has been one of my most uh, favorite groups of all uh, for what you do and how you do it. So with that, let me uh, start uh, with the beginning. Uh, tonight I have uh, uh, two disclosures. One is, is that you better get used to uh, occasional baseball analogies because all I'm going to do tonight is try to call balls and strikes for you. Uh, you know, not uh, nothing partisan, uh, just how do I see it? Where do I see it? Uh, the second thing is the fact that uh, I, the one disclosure probably most important for you is that I think I know less about this virus today than I did six months ago. So as I learn more and we learn more, you can take into account uh, just what do we really know and not know. Uh, you know, uh, in, in light of that baseball analogy, I'm off, often, asked often, where are we at in this pandemic? Where are we at? And I've been saying for the past year, you know, by inning, I got us up to the bottom of the third or the top of the fourth, and I haven't moved in recent months. And people say, why haven't you moved? And I've been very concerned that this virus has more tricks up its sleeve, which have now been demonstrated in the last a month and a half. Um, I, uh, I made a comment today uh, at the Biden-Harris advisory board meeting that uh, in fact, I feel like today it's deja vu all over again, January, 2020. Uh, this pandemic has extracted a terrible price on us already. Just to give you some perspective, if you look at influenza, the last 10 years in this country, influenza has killed between 12 to 61,000 people, a wide range, but surely inclusive. If you look at the number of deaths in the United States just from in the COVID-19 in the last year, it's almost 380,000 deaths, and they're going up quickly, about 3,000 deaths a day on average right now. 
Uh, Case-wise, there was a time when New York was a house on fire. Uh, The country felt like, oh my God, it can't get any worse than this in April. And we were at 23 to 25,000 cases a day. Today, it's not unusual to report out on average right now, 250,000 cases. And, and we're clearly hitting more days of 300,000 plus cases. Our hospitalizations have approached levels we've never seen before. Uh, right now, we are at about 130,000 people in this country are hospitalized. In the length of the, the time that we're gonna be together tonight, approximately 10 to 14 people will die from COVID in this country alone. Uh, finally, let me just say that uh, where we're going is really dependent right now on, on two things. We're in a race with this virus. Vaccines are coming. They hold tremendous promise. Uh, and I believe that over the course of the next months, we will see more and more vaccines. But we've also seen over the course of the last uh, six to eight weeks, a series of events that occurred with the coronavirus, what we call SARS-CoV-2, that um, have been unparalleled in terms of, you might say, modern virology. Um, viruses traditionally will have a, a series of mutations or, or basically mistakes when they reproduce themselves. Most of them are, are what we would call m- mistakes in the sense that they basically uh, actually don't give the uh, virus an advantage. If anything, it gives it a disadvantage. Um, they tend to be uh, somewhat spaced out over time. And in fact, we often have aged viruses, much like the rings on a tree, by how old it is, by how many mutations it has. This coronavirus has hit us hard in the last six weeks where a virus that would have four or five mutations over the course of the past year acquired up to 23 mutations in just a matter of days. These mutations that we're seeing right now, you've already heard about the UK strain of virus that is now causing great challenges in, uh, in England, uh, Ireland, uh, we're seeing it now in Denmark. Uh, that virus has clearly enhanced transmission capacity, uh, anywhere from 50 to 70% more infectious, meaning not that just 50 or 70% more people will get it, but that in an environment like that, the person who is infected is that much more capable of transmitting the virus. Um, as you know, what's happening in uh, places like London right now, Ireland is a house on fire. Uh, all of these have occurred just in weeks. I just got done reviewing a, a journal paper that's been submitted to a major medical journal here in the United States in the last several days, in which when you watch what this virus did across the long-term care facilities of England in a matter of one month, it was simply stunningly remarkable. Um, so that's the first variant issue, this one from the UK. The second one that we have grave concerns about is an independent one that emerged in, the, in South Africa. Unlike the first one, which the primary issue in the UK is just more transmission, this one appears to also uh, have changes that will interfere with the, uh, what we call immune therapy that we use, the plasma or the monoclonal antibodies as well as we have initial information suggesting it may actually defeat the vaccine antibody. And if that were to be the case, and that actually happens, uh, even if it's in a moderate level, meaning that it's not complete, we have a real challenge on our hands. And that, that's why I said earlier about the idea of uh, deja vu all over again back to 2000. 
January of 2020. Um, and so we're working on that as we speak uh, and, and extensively trying to understand that. The vaccine manufacturers are already working on new vaccines to try to cover for these mutational changes. And the whole point of it is that these variants that are now emerging on a worldwide basis are likely to only to continue and increase in number and complexity. Um, we now are concerned about variants in three ways. One, do they cause more transmission? Two, do they cause more serious disease? Or three, do they in fact defeat uh, the immune therapy benefits or that of the vaccine? If you just look at the first one up front, uh, we may very well have some of the influence we're seeing right now in this country from the UK uh, variant. I so happened to live in the state which had the earliest isolate of that from a, an individual in mid-December, but it's clear that that virus has been spreading in the United States for at least six weeks or more and may in part be responsible for some of the surges in cases we've seen. Um, we're seeing surely that virus in a number of other locations. As of tonight, it's been identified in at least 57 different countries. Assume it's everywhere. And that's what we're up against right now. Imagine already the very, very uh, real challenges we have with healthcare delivery in, in the Southern Sunbelt states. I know some of you are from Arizona. Right now, Arizona is a severely challenged location, Southern California, all the way across literally to the East Coast along the Sunbelt states. Um, we're seeing uh, areas in the Northeast, Rhode Island right now has one of the highest rates of, of uh, uh, cases in the country. Um, and uh, again, this has really taken off. Uh, today, today was the first day since the pandemic began where of the 51 states in the District of Columbia, 50 states had rising, significantly rising cases over the past 14 days. All 50 states did today. That uh, we haven't seen since the beginning of the pandemic. So on one hand, the vaccine, we still are gonna use it. We're gonna be hopeful that what we're seeing in South Africa uh, does not mean that the vaccines are defeated, uh, but we're gonna to have to watch this very carefully, very, very carefully. Uh, and I can, you can imagine not only the physical toll that this disease takes on it, but the psychological toll has also been dramatic and traumatic. And uh, imagine you know, how we tell this story if we're beginning to see compromise to the vaccines, which were basically our great hope. Uh, uh, I, you know, what's, what's the next chapter? And I have to say, it's challenging. Um, so I'll, I'll leave it with that just to say, now you know why I'm saying we're still in the top of the third or the bottom of the fourth. Um, there's a lot of this uh, game left to play. Uh, and I can't tell you where it's gonna go. I have said repeatedly that uh, this was not the big one that I still believed influenza would be. And uh, Senator, it's notable in chapter 13 of my book, it was on coronaviruses and the title of it was SARS and MERS, a harbinger of things to come. And even I had no idea that it would be something quite like this. I no longer think that influenza could necessarily be the big one. This one very well may be in light of what's happening and where we're going. So uh, I'm happy to, at this point to take questions, comments. Uh, you know, I'll give it to you the best I know. And uh, just to say right now that um, uh, I would like to think that by summer, we could all have some of this behind us. I'm not sure anymore what we're gonna have uh, over the months ahead. I said, that's what my old friend John McCain would call straight talk, but you know what you're talking about. Um, we've got uh, five people in the queue to ask questions. Uh, first is Maxine Clark. 
thank you. And thank you, Dr. Osterholm, for all of your communications to us over the last nine months. They've been very helpful. Let's think positively for a moment. That was a pretty humbling um, and straight talk. Uh, assuming that this, the, the vaccine does work and will, will um, help us all stay healthy, uh, what is the course that you recommend to different communities on how they distribute the vaccine? Because I have friends all over the country that already have gotten it, said they've been called, they're, on yeah. a, they're gonna get it on February 15th, whatever it is, and we don't know anything in St. Louis. Well, uh, let's just make the assumption the vaccine is gonna work and what's happened. Um, I actually did a podcast, I do a weekly podcast, and my podcast more than a month ago, so the title of it was The Last Mile and the Last Inch. And it was a critique of how poorly we had planned for the ultimate distribution of this vaccine and how we were gonna to work to get people to take it. Uh, you know, Operation Warp Speed was a tremendous success, literally a Manhattan Project-like success to get us the vaccines that we now have from research and development, all the uh, studies that needed to be done, the approval process and manufacturing. But um, I look at it like this incredible Golden Gate Bridge that was built, except they didn't have enough money to finish the last hundred feet. Kind of made it for a problem to try to get across the, 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 the ocean there. And that's what happened with Operation Warp Speed. They didn't devote any resources to planning for how to get the vaccine out and how to distribute it, uh, you know, what would happen with the communities, how would they respond? Uh, and so this has been a challenge from the get-go. They just assumed if they somehow delivered it on a FedEx truck, everything else would be okay. Well, let me just say, first of all, I've now been in public health for 45 years. I was involved with the 1976 flying flu campaign, uh, involved with 2009, trying to get influenza vaccine out. As uh, Senator Lieberman remembers the 2002 smallpox vaccine issue, uh, all of those, all of those combined were not nearly as complicated as this situation is. Let me give you for an example. The Pfizer vaccine must stay in this basically about minus 90 degree Fahrenheit freezer until it's about to be used. When it's taken out and put in a regular refrigerator, it has a shelf life of five days. But more specifically, once you reconstitute it, meaning mixing the, the liquid in with it, it, it's good for six hours. Healthcare workers today feel like they're dealing with a time bomb because they don't want to waste a dose. And so if they take 100 doses out and only 87 people show up at four o'clock, one hour before expiration date, they're running around the hospital saying, anybody, anybody, who you want, who will take the vaccine? Um, and it was not well planned at all that way. And this makes it tough. The Moderna vaccine is a little better. Um, when the federal government planned to roll out the vaccine, they hired two pharmacy companies to do the long-term care facilities, which are a very important part of this uh, a pandemic impact. The problem was they weren't ready at all. In our state, for example, they had to come in first after they were supposed to be vaccinating and ask the Board of Pharmacy for an approval to basically allow non-licensed pharmacists in Minnesota to come give vaccine. Well, that happened in almost all the states in the country. They just didn't have nearly enough people. And so uh, we've lagged desperately right now in trying to get long-term care done because of that single federal contract. Um, what has happened is the a prioritization for giving this vaccine went to healthcare workers and long-term care. And that was the uh, advice from the CDC to do that. 
some states decided, well, we're going to go ahead and just get it on our own uh, and give it out at uh, whatever age, in this case, uh, Florida at 65 years of age. The problem was they didn't have nearly enough vaccine to do that. And the vaccines have been literally coming in on three to four day increments. And we often don't know three or four days in advance how much we're going to get that next three to four days later. And so it's been very difficult to plan these clinics or to plan for how we're going to outreach people. Now that's going to change. We're going to see the volume of vaccine go up substantially. But we have not invested one single penny yet in state and local health departments, which have historically been the air traffic control and often the actual uh, mechanics of delivering vaccines on a population basis. That money, which will eventually help support them, is still held up as it passes through the recent legislation. And the CDC announced that on January 18th, they'll send out guidance how to apply for the money. Well, right now, that's like, you know, trying to go out and hire your fire department well after the third alarm comes in. And uh, so expect that there's still going to be challenges and problems. I can tell you that the Biden-Harris group understands that. They've been looking at that. I've been involved with that issue. But it's going to be a rough go for a little while here in getting that vaccine out. Uh, and I think what you're ultimately going to see is more and more reliance on age as being a primary factor rather than essential workers or other things because in fact, age is still a major risk factor for a bad outcome with this disease. But in long and short of it is that the delivery uh, of this vaccine was a real uh, botched job. Um, in terms of trying to get the vaccine out, this is where I said last mile, last inch. The last inch is getting people convinced to take this vaccine. And I bet you there's some right on this program right here that have real legitimate concerns. Do I wanna get this right now? A vaccine produced by Operation Warp Speed, the military, which sends shivers up some people's spine. How safe is that? It was done in this speedy, speedy way. Uh, and I can assure you, it really did not shortcut any safety steps. Number two is the fact that it's a new vaccine called messenger RNA. Are they going to put something in my body genetically to change my cells? And am I going to be changed somehow? We even have up to 40% of healthcare workers today that have just said, well, I'm going to take a pass the first time around and let's see how everybody else does with it. Okay. Um, third of all is we do see reactions with this vaccine. Now, ironically, that's a good sign in the sense that for people who have really sore arms and, you know, have fevers and so forth, they, it means the vaccine is actually taking, it's really working. The problem is that that's really caused some people to resist getting the vaccine uh, because they don't want to be like that. Uh, just as a very personal story, um, I have a niece today that is homesick. She is a head R, uh, RN at an intensive care unit for COVID here in the Twin Cities. And three, she and three of her colleagues got vaccinated with the second shot a day ago. Last night, all four of them developed severe fe high fevers, other uh, just body aches, flu-like symptoms, uh, couldn't raise their arm above their shoulder. Now they're much better tonight, but they had to miss work today. Um, that is a part of the reality of getting this vaccine. That'll occur in 20 to 30% of people. And so com combined with all of that, we have a real challenge ahead of us. Uh, I am very conscious of this and I welcome your feedback because when I shared with you earlier our concerns about will the vaccine work, I'm making the assumption it will, but we have to plan as if it might not. And that's a very hard message to deliver to the public because they're going to say, why should I take it at all if it's not going to work? And that's the last thing we want to do 
is keep them from taking it. But at the same time, we owe it in the honesty to say, you know, we are in uncharted territories right now. So I think, uh, you know, Maxine, to answer your question directly, hold on, it's coming. There will be more direction. Uh, I know that it's a challenge right now. Uh, you know, we, we all want to get it to feel that level of safety that we don't necessarily feel. Uh, and I think over the next four to six weeks, uh, you'll see a very different perspective on how vaccines out there, how it's delivered, the message on getting it, where to get it, how to get it, why to get it. I think that's all going to get a lot better than it has been. Thanks, uh, Mike. I, I failed to mention, but I think most of you know that uh, after the election in November, uh, President-elect Biden asked uh, Dr. Osterholm to be on his uh, uh, transition, COVID-19 transition advisory group, which is a relatively small group, and uh, he's played a significant role in it. The second thing I'll say, and I don't want to ask the question be, uh, unless it's time at the end because we have a lot of people, um, but listening to you uh, talk about the way we botched the delivery of the vaccine whose creation was a kind of miracle, uh, it, it does raise questions about whether our beloved federal system really uh, works best in a national crisis like this and whether, uh, in fact, there should have been a, a federal, um, a total control of the distribution of the vaccine. I'm just going to leave that. And uh, the, the next question is uh, uh, goes to Bob Burt. Bob? Sorry, I was probably better on, on mute. But anyway, here goes. <clears throat> uh, my doctor said that she had read some material that the Modesta vaccine in uh, Great Britain had, in fact, killed all the virus in the uh, in the nasal passage in the throat with the implication that uh, maybe that was a very good sign that people who have been vaccinated could not, in fact, spread it anymore. I wonder how you feel like that. Obviously, it has not been peer-reviewed or it hasn't been put to authorities. But uh, how do you feel about the, about the uh, p potential for people who have been vaccinated not being able to spread the disease anymore? Well, thank you for that question, because that is a trillion dollar question right now for those who have been vaccinated. And in fact, I'll tell you that there are no data that do exist yet that actually address that head on, that at least have been made uh, available for review. The companies are currently studying that. Uh, all three companies, Moderna, Pfizer, and Oxford Zeneca, uh, Astra, AstraZeneca, Oxford vaccine. And uh, we're still waiting for those data. And what, what we're really talking about here is once I get the vaccine, could I still get infected again with no symptoms, actually grow enough virus so that I have it in my throat and then I might then transmit it back to people as what we'd call an asymptomatic infection. And I uh, professionally don't think that that's gonna be a challenge. I think we'll, it'll be quite successful that way. We don't have those data. So that's why people are still uh, asked to or required to wear face cloth coverings uh, and so forth after they've been vaccinated. Uh, I'm, I'm quite willing to say right now that I think that that we'll have the data within uh, no later, probably than four to six weeks from now. And I think it's going to come out that it is, in fact, as you said, Bob, uh, not not a problem uh, that, in fact, uh, you, you don't have these silent or asymptomatic carriers that spread the virus after you've been vaccinated. Thank you. Uh, next, thanks, Bob. Uh, next is Christy Walton. Thank you, Dr. Osterholm. Thank you, Senator. Um, 
thank you, Mike, for the um, the work that you do. Um, I have two questions. One, if there were a national mandate on vaccination, I think pretty similar to what we did with polio, that should certainly, in my mind, stop the spread and mutation of the virus. Uh, specifically, the mutation is what I think we're worried about now. And secondly, I, I think I've already asked you somewhat about this um, idea of subdermal subcutaneous uh, injection of the vaccine, where an, uh, the vaccine dosage that we are typically giving to one person could actually serve 100 people. Uh, and I understand the fear uh, or the, the, the re, um, reserve about trying that is the uh, possible reaction, but it seems to me that we need to vaccinate the world. And so I'm wondering if you have any information on anyone or group that might be testing that application because it's worked with other vaccines. Well, first of all, thank you very much, Christy. And I'm going to take the liberty here. I hope I'm not out of line just to make an acknowledgement uh, that uh, right now, one of the challenges we have in this country uh, has been the critical shortages of drugs that we need every day. There's basically 156 different drugs that are we consider on the list of critical drugs for just pe keeping people alive. And we've had many shortages of those due to the fact that they're made uh, often offshore, primarily in India and China. Uh, very, very insecure supply chains, uh, generic drugs. And Christie has been responsible more than any other person in the United States for helping to support the work to right. determine how can we deal with that issue and how can we monitor it. And I've, I'm part of that group that's been a beneficiary of her very, very important support and her vision for that. So Christie, I just want to personally thank you for that and uh, say that uh, uh, I listen to you very much. You are you you are very wise in what you ask. The the first question uh, with regard to mandating vaccines, you know, I uh, I am like you. I want more than anything to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. But I've also spent my career trying to get children vaccinated, uh, and have seen firsthand the horrible horrible outcome of kids who are not vaccinated and what can happen to them. And even with those mandates that we have, we have been still unsuccessful for a core group of children to ever get them vaccinated because of exemptions, et cetera. And so I, I will do anything to push forward with getting this vaccine into people's arms. Uh, but I, I think at this point, it's not clear to me that a mandate will actually accomplish that, that People will find objection, which they can get validated through a government body uh, for which a court will honor, that they will allow them, whether it be religious or otherwise, not to get vaccinated. So um, uh, this is a point of a, a major discussion right now on our part, particularly a lot of, of businesses, which may very well have the ability to mandate that. And you know, it's a pay, place of employment. If you wanna work there, you gotta get it. So I would just say right now, it's not cut and dry that that would accomplish getting more people vaccinated in a large way than already are. But I think we everything has to be on the table uh, and, and, and look at that. As far as the dosing issue, what Christy is talking about is deep, going deep into the arm with more of the uh, in a particular vaccine versus another procedure we use where we barely go under the skin. 
mm. and basically de deliver a lot less vaccine. But in some cases, that's actually been shown to give a superior response as opposed to deep into the muscle. And so at this point, uh, uh, Christy, those studies have been recommended by our group uh, with Biden-Harris for the NIH, along with other studies, including elaborating on children and vaccinations, looking at how can we mix and match. Right now, the, technically you can't mix and match vaccines. So if you get a Pfizer vaccine the first time around, you have to get a Pfizer second shot. Well, what happens if you have a shortage of Pfizer, but you got Moderna sitting around or vice versa? And yeah. so there's a series of these studies that are now being ramped up. And one of them is exactly Christy, the study that you just recommended. So hopefully we'll have results on that in the near term. And as you point out, we can actually stretch the vaccine a lot further if in fact we're successful at using a much smaller dose sub Q rather than a much larger dose and going in deep. So we'll keep you posted. Uh, thanks, Mike. Christy, thanks for your extraordinary uh, philanthropy. We're very proud of uh, everything you do. Okay, next is Steve Schlenker. And uh, Dr. Ostone, thank you very much for all your involvement, both with the transition and all through the uh, all through these years, quite frankly. Uh, one specific question I had, but before I say that, your point on the six hours or lose it on the vaccine, I know of one person in the Palo Alto area, a friend, who jumped the queue because even an institution like Stanford Medical, they uh, started uh, using the vaccines to do secretaries and back office and uh, everyone, and then they still ran out. So they had a very short window where the doctors were calling people in Palo Alto saying, could you please, you know, before we lose these vaccines, can you come in and take them? So you're absolutely yeah. right on that point. My one question on your original discussion on these two new variants, is there any indication that uh, the mRNA vaccines or the modified adenovirus vaccines that one might be effective with the new variants, but the other might not? Or is it the view that either both types of vaccines will be effective on these new variants or neither will be? Yeah, really a very, very important question. question. And yep. uh, look at the uh, vaccines as really being what kind of package do they come in as opposed to uh, what's inside the package. And so the mRNA vaccines are one package. The chimp adeno vaccines, the other one you referenced, are another package. But inside of it, it's basically the same antigen or the same material that's causing the body to elicit this response. That's exactly what the antibody uh, uh, which we produce uh, occurs because of how those vaccines actually adhere to the cell and introduce the genetic material into the cell to basically make the antigen or the the, the material we respond to. So the challenges would be the same. Basically, if they reconfigure how a how the, the vaccine particle attaches to the human cell, as long as they block that, and what's happening with these variants is that they're changing the outside of themselves so that it's not recognized by the vaccine as it comes in. And that's gonna be the same either one. So we're gonna, that's one of the challenges we have right now is that, well, one of the things we're looking at or considering are a different kind of vaccines called T-cell vaccines. B-cells are what produce antibody, T-cells produce cellular immunity. And while we don't have nearly as much research on those done, right now, a number of people are looking at maybe that would be the better way to go because you're less likely to see that same kind of, of, of change, mutational change with T-cell related antigens. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Uh, 
from Joan Culver. Um, Dr. Get- thank you for oh. coming tonight. Um, I typed in this question, but the, um, the gist of it is, for those who have already contracted the existing virus, um, A, should they continue to receive the vaccine when it becomes available, and B, what would be the predicted outcome should these new strains come through and what impact would it have on the population who have already, um, as I said, become ill with the virus? Well, Joan, uh, again, another great question, uh, which we don't have a a definitive answer. Uh, Number one is we believe that uh, from, from all the data we have to date, if you have been previously infected, you obviously have some immunity. How good and how long that lasts, we don't know. There is uh, surely early data supporting the fact that if you were more severely ill, you actually had a better response and your immune system was revved up more uh, than if you had mild or asymptomatic infection. The bottom line recommendation is at this point is even if you've been infected, you should still get the vaccine and you can get it literally upon recovery. Now we have been postponing people in the healthcare side who have previously had infection if we knew they did, not because of anything with them, but they probably have protection for at least 90 days or more. So let's get the vaccine into someone who is not yet protected, but make sure we don't forget these people We come back and get them at that 90 day time period. Will they be protected against the variant strains? And let me just be really clear on this. These are two variant strains. We also know of another one that emerged in Brazil that's now also found in Japan. We're going to be a sea of, of variants before long. I think, don't be surprised if there's a U.S. variant in the next days or weeks. So there's mm-hmm. more coming. But the challenge we have right now is, is that if you have been previously infected, are you likely to be protected? And the answer is maybe, meaning that we know already. In fact, there's a case mm-hmm. literally today report out of London who was infected with the previous strain of the virus. They actually isolated the virus. He was quite ill recovered. Four months later, he now has become infected with the variant strain in London, and he's in the hospital today. And so we know that that can happen. The question is how often? So that's why we still recommend if you have been ill, you've been infected, you know you have been, still get vaccinated. Uh, And if it's been more than 90 days, I do it as soon as possible when your number comes up. If it's been less than 90 days, you probably have a window there to, to get in. Uh, at, at some point between then and the 90 days. Uh, okay, uh, I think after this hour, people will be heading toward the liquor cabinet. <laughs> but as I said, you're telling the truth. Uh, and next is Hefstein. Yes, uh, thank you, Dr. Osterhelm. Um, I have a question about the middle innings. <clears throat> and my question is obviously, ramping up the vaccine is a key component. Um, But also I want to talk about human behavior because it seems to me uh, our company has offices and over 20 offices throughout the country. And if you take Dr. Fauci's recommendation of masking and social distancing as being kind of the baseline, we're in markets that have where there is no following of that. And we're in markets uh, where it's almost shutdown kind of a thing where restaurants can't serve at all. And there is no relationship between um, the infection rate, the hospitalization rate uh, in those markets. It's just kind of all over the board. 
almost and 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 what should we do as far as balancing between as you said before uh not totally shutting down the economy but also people taking the proper precautions in addition you know layering on you know an aggressive and thoughtful way of of increasing the vaccinations yeah um you know, I, I don't want to sound like an incredibly good question, uh, one that I struggle with a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, I have been a proponent uh, for some time that uh, distancing was by far the most efficient way to prevent transmission of this virus. For those who believe there was only a six foot distance between two people that would separate them, that's simply not the case. We know these aerosols can travel, these very light particles can travel great distances. We know that face cloth coverings may only be 15 to 20% effective at most uh, in prevention, which is still a buffer. It helps give you more time, but it's not an N95 respirator, which is by far much more efficient. Uh, we know that there are certain places that people gather that we see a much enhanced transmission. For those, I just have to say, who are hockey fans here, uh, one of our banes of existence in the United States has been hockey arenas. The reason being is the cold air on top of the uh, boards and the glass holds all the air in. And no matter what kind of ventilation you have in the room, in the arena, the air stays down inside that hockey area. So, Senator, mm -hmm. you were talking about Wayne Gretzky. We've had, at least in Minnesota, 57 outbreaks in, in, in hockey arenas. Um, and so some areas have posed a much increased risk. We show that in restaurants. We can show that in bars. Uh, we can show it. I, I, if I had a nickel for every wedding and funeral that we had documented transmission and, and unfortunately in far too many cases, serious illness and deaths occurring or associated with those. So the challenge is how do you bring uh, as much protection to the community without shutting down the economy? And what do you do? And frankly, this has been one of the stories in this country of the have and have nots. If you look at our essential workers, disproportionately uh, racial and, and ethnic inequality, uh, they're the ones that are making sure that what we need every day gets done, uh, while many of us are able to stay at home. And you know, I'm one of those people with a great deal of, of freedom to pre prevent myself from getting exposed. So this has become a huge challenge for us. And I agree with you that we need to look at this. Uh, and I say, look at it. I, I'm not real popular in some circles right now because I have raised these questions. Uh, it was very painful for me to see what Minnesota did to put in place all of the restrictions that we did when our ICUs were overflowing and healthcare workers were begging us to do whatever we could to keep patients out. I talked to far too many nurses and doctors that had just worked their, worked their fourth consecutive 16 hour day. You know, it was, it was tough. At the same time, North and South Dakota did much, much less than we did. And yet the overall disease pattern was very similar when it went up and came down. Uh, what does that tell you? You know, so I, I don't have an answer for you other than to say that this is clearly, clearly a big issue that we have to resolve to understand what will make a difference. Um, and and I'm, I'm afraid to say what uh, I believe in my heart of hearts, is that unless you really restrict people to stay at home orders, you're gonna see transmission. And you say, well, you can't do that, stay at home. We can't do that. Well, I understand that. 
I understand the economic implications. I understand essential services, but uh, you know we have lost perspective in this country of what we're trying to do. We want vaccine to save us all. I understand that, but right now uh, I find that most days my job is to just try to keep the hospitals from busting at the seams. My job is if I can help just keep the number of cases below what's happening. In LA last week, I was talking to clinicians that were literally out of oxygen. They had no oxygen to give these desperately ill patients. And they were, you couldn't buy it on the black market at that point. Uh, you know, they were putting ambulance attendants, EMTs were being instructed, as you know, don't bring them in unless they're safe. We can think you can we save them. Uh, and so they were literally letting people stay at home to die because normally they would be brought into the hospital if there wasn't room for them. So I think right now, what we're trying to find is, I'm not trying to stop all transmission in the community. That would be naive. Now, the Asian countries have taught us how to do that a lot. We just haven't decided to take those steps. But for what we have done right now, we're just trying to keep the hospitals from overflowing. And we do have to look honestly and carefully at what methods really make a difference and what don't, and, and how that impacts the economy. Let me just close by saying, I have absolutely, I mean, I know firsthand the pain that this economic issues have caused. How many single moms, three kids lost their job in a restaurant, were just trying to keep a roof over their head. The, obviously the support was not adequate from the federal government. And that's a huge challenge. That's a huge challenge. Uh, next question goes to Ann Hohn. So first of all, I wanna say I am a Minnesota resident and uh, we're very grateful that you uh, are in our state. Thank you. Kind of leads into the, you know, specifically at Minnesota's level, the impact that the distribution would have on all, already our current um, system and the, the, the amount of work that our healthcare system is, is taking on. Have we thought about looking at the nurses union and pulling in nurses that are out of or in retirement to come in and help administer the vaccine? Uh, thanks, Ann. Actually, we have. Everything's on the table. Uh, the challenge we have to some degree, and we ran into this, believe it or not, with the polling issue, was it's the older individuals that are also at higher risk of having severe outcomes if they get in infected. Uh, and so how do you protect them? And of course, we say distancing is important. And then you put them in with thousands of people. What have you just done? And so that's been our biggest challenge is just making sure we can adequately protect these people. Mm -hmm. But everything's on the table right now. Um, you know, mm -hmm. even teaching, uh, you know, paramedics uh, to become excellent vaccinators, uh, et cetera. I think that's, you're, you're seeing all that happen. So um, it's all on the table. Uh, even, even having, as I said, National Guard just be there to help with the flow of what goes through and how it goes through. Um, volunteers, we've had a number of, of organizations that are like poll uh, watchers and poll attendants. You know, they're gonna be there to help do the paperwork, get people moved through. So everything has to be on the table. And also the other thing it has to be, there are, we, we need to work eight days a week right now and as uh, many as extended hours as we can. Anybody that thinks this is a eight to five job, five days a week, uh, they're in the wrong profession right now. 
You're here. Thank you. Uh, Jamie Rome. Hi, Dr. Uh, Osterholm. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. I think you've done a, an exceptional job throughout. And my question really is, if the 1.8% number, which is, and I've been looking at this worldometer number for a long time, and, and feeding that data to my uh, doctor friends from WashU and in St. Louis, which is not far from you, it's at 1.8% now and it's come down. Wouldn't it start to turn and go up as far as the death and combined, uh, combined with, the, uh, with the critical and the uh, serious number? Wouldn't that start to go up at some point given these, uh, these new things? I mean, that, that's the tension, I think, between that and the, uh, um, and, and the vaccinations, which my wife, who is a pediatrician, has gotten also. Good. So, you so know. Let, could I ask for a clarification? You say 1.8. I'm not sure. Are you talking about the R naught or the reproduction no, number? No, I no. help me I'm with talking that about number. Death, I'm sorry. Deaths, deaths plus combined, combined with um, the critical and the serious number is 1.8 percent now, and it's come down from a really high number, from like four or five percent to 1.8 percent uh, over time, over probably six months. And you would think that that 1.8% number would go up. Well, I'm not sure if I completely follow, but let me just say the case mortality rate, which is the rate of people who are known to be cases ultimately die. That's right. the case fatality rate. That's the percent you're talking about, I believe. I think um, that's we, combined. I'm, I'm, combine, I'm combining that number with the serious and the critical, the people that are in the hospitals. Yeah. And that's really not doable. That's, that's kind of like mixing apples and oranges, and I can explain in a moment why. Okay. Um, if you look at the deaths in of themselves, that has changed substantially since April. And the reason why is we've gotten one of the untold stories that is a great success, a silver line to this dark cloud, is we've gotten much, much better at taking care of these patients in the ICU. We now know they don't automatically go on mechanical ventilation. Uh, how to oxygenate the lungs, how to treat for what is in many cases a host-related response, meaning the immune system actually does the damage, and how do you hold that back? And so what we've done is we've dropped dramatically the case fatality rate that was in some cases as high as 8%, 9% of those who got you know, in the ICU who subsequently died. The number of serious and critical illnesses also has been impacted by earlier treatment. For example, putting people on oxygen much sooner, even when they're not as, as severely ill, can also keep people from becoming more severely ill. What's happened, what's been our big challenge has been the fact, and, I, and I'll use an example here, we have run out of intensive care people. We don't have intensive care doctors or nurses. Um, you know, I. I have a number of friends in this area, and uh, one of the nurses that I know very well, uh, who is a charge nurse in another ICU here for a COVID patients, um, they had assigned one ICU nurse per patient. They were that complicated. They're that difficult. At the height of our peak here, which we just went through in November, they had one ICU nurse for five patients with two float support nurses to help. They had at one point one 
ICU doctor, one intensives for two patients. By the time they got stretched out, they were one for eight. And so the quality of care went down and we started losing patients again. We actually saw our number of case fatality number going back up, not down. And it was just because of that. So imagine you have, you, you have a, 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 a bad stroke tonight and you need surgery. They bring you into the hospital. And guess what? The neurosurgeon isn't available tonight. Oh, but the family practice guy is down the street. You want to let him in there? You'd probably say, I don't think that's probably the answer. That's what we've been doing more recently. If you go to the Southern states right now, that's been a challenge. Thank God we've got the healthcare workers that are willing to work, but they don't have the same skill level that the intensive care people who have done such an amazing job. So that's why those numbers can fluctuate and go up and down as we see them. Okay, uh, last question goes to Mark Goldberg. Thank you so much and thank you, doctor. Um, given the discussion at the beginning on the variants that are coming out, given your discussion on the delivery system, and given the fact that the data shows that you know, having the second shot of the vaccine is critical in terms of trying to prevent additional mutations, how do you think about the trade-off between getting as much vaccine out there as possible, but also making sure that people get a second dose on top? Yeah. Well, I, I actually have been living that for the last 48 hours. I've been in a number of media shows uh, representing, in a sense, the, the Biden-Harris perspective on that issue. And let me just point out, and Senator, thank you for uh, mentioning that, but you know, I, I've served roles in the last five presidential administrations. Uh, you know, my job, again, is like I said, called balls and strikes. In the Trump administration, I served as a science envoy for the State Department for 14 months earlier. And so, you know, when I speak, I, I, I try to be as nonpartisan as I possibly can be. And so, uh, you know, in that regard, let me say that this is the case here. Um, what we originally had planned, and I say we, the Operation Warp Speed just decided, they would hold the second dose for every dose that went out so that it would be there in three weeks. Well, when you look at that, that's really not needed because as you ramp up production, basically it's like a, you know, the, the kind of compound interest, you know, the number of doses are going up substantially each week. And as part of that, we could take some of the first and or some of the second doses save for the first doses and put that in a strategic stockpile. So if there was a manufacturing error, you know, one lot didn't pass sterility test, whatever, you'd have a reserve. But we can actually continue to up first doses while also vaccinating with the second dose from that newer production. And when you look at that, you save a lot of people because of the additional vaccine out there. So one, it does not deviate in any way, shape or form from the two dose approach. Two, it still assures that the second dose will be given on time. And three, it's, I think, the best and wisest use of the vaccine rather than having this huge, huge, huge reserve sitting aside waiting for your dose to come to you three to four weeks later. And I think we'll accomplish the best of both worlds without jeopardizing anybody's uh, vaccine uh, protection. And that's what's being proposed right now. Uh, the recommendations that came out from the administration today do not account for that. They just say, throw it all out. And I think that that would not be wise. I would not want to leave people with the possibility that they couldn't be protected if there was a manufacturing challenge. We, we need to have some vaccine in reserve. 
Uh, Mike, we've got about three or four minutes left, and I'm going to uh, take advantage of being the moderator and ask you a kind of primitive question, um, because we're in the midst of this terrible pandemic, worse than a century. And uh, you've said in here and elsewhere that uh, it's probable that worse pandemics will be coming. So why is this happening now? In other words, one obvious uh, explanation for lay people like me is that we're traveling more, goods are traveling more. But is there, are there other factors at work here? There are. Um, one is just by the very nature of the fact that there are 8 billion people on the face of the earth right now. One of every eight people who's ever lived is on the face of the earth as we speak. Um, the crowdingness that occurs there and how, what conditions, you know, we went through a somewhat historic moment about five years ago when more than half of all the world's population lived in an urbanized area as opposed to rural areas. So we've become much more concentrated. The second thing is in order to feed that particular population, we've fundamentally changed the animal populations of the world. Right now, there are an estimated 23 billion chickens on the face of the earth right now to feed the protein needs of that 8 billion population. Among those 23 billion chickens actually represent half of all the body weight of birds in the world. And avian influenza comes from those chickens. And it so happens that there are about 390 million pigs in the face of the earth today. And that is also to help feed the rest of that 8 billion people. And guess where many of these animals are co-located right next to each other, right here in our own state. The two counties with the highest levels of turkeys and the highest levels of pigs all are within spitting distance from each other. And what happens is the viruses in the birds can't infect humans very readily, but they surely can infect pig lungs who have receptors for the bird viruses. And the pigs also have to have receptors for the human viruses. Influenza right there is the perfect mixing vessel. I couldn't go into a high cost laboratory and do a better job of creating a mixing vessel than we do in human nature. Uh, to feed the world, we are right now eating bushmeat second to no, to an untime. Look at Ebola, what's happened and how that's moved and changed. Uh, so many of the diseases we see today, you know, uh, are a reflection of our interaction with our wildlife. And so many of these viruses are coming from there. You know, there is really hardly any place in the world that can still say they have a deep, dark jungle. You know, we have infiltrated and we've really encountered where not only are they ecologically rich in, in all other aspects of life, everything from animals to plants, but also of the many infectious agents, particularly viruses. So I think it's a combination of all of those. But to, to add to your point, once a microbe shows up somewhere, tomorrow it could be everywhere. And that's what's right. happening. And that's a huge yeah. challenge. So just last question uh, following up. Um, so what's the, what's, what can we do to prevent that? I mean, should we be eating, should we become vegetarians? Yeah. You know, what we have to do is we have to start looking at primary public health and infectious diseases like we look at military protection. When you look at the cost and the number of lives lost, this will rival a lot of wars. And yet in the military, we provide resources all the time so that we have the military equipment there, you know, the military industrial complex. Uh, in public health, you know, we basically go out and try to hire the fire department, as I said, long after the fire uh, alarm has been set. We have so underinvested. And I have to tell you, I was uh, doing a talk this past summer with a Nobel Prize economist 
And he said at that time, the cost of this pandemic is such, if you need billions and billions of dollars to solve it, there'll be a small investment a return, and a great return on investment, given what it's costing us. And so I think we need to go back. I mean, many of you would be hard pressed to know that there are locations in this country right now that are choking on trying to do surveillance for COVID because they're still using fax machines to collect information. That is how out of date we are. And so I think the challenge is, is how do we upgrade, update modern public health? How do we provide for the vaccines and the drugs instead of the missiles or the bombs? And you know what? They're gonna be just as important uh, coming down the road. If I had vaccines already ready to go, we could have had a very, very different picture here than we had. We've known since 2003, and that's why I, uh, the chapter of my book in chapter 13, SARS and MERS, a harbinger of things to come. We knew these coronaviruses were coming. You know, why were we surprised? And so I think, Senator, if we could invest in that, it would be some of the best invested money in terms of return on investment I could imagine. I agree, and uh, maybe we can uh, spread that message to our uh, no labels problem solvers of both parties in Congress because it's it is part of the solution. Hey, Mike, thanks very much for thank your, you, sir. Uh, you, you're a, you know I'm a, I'm a baseball fan and I've often gotten angry at umpires, but not tonight. You called <laughs> balls and strikes in a very credible way. So God bless you. Stay well. Thanks, thanks to all. Thanks to all of you. Thank you. Go to nolabels.org to learn more about how we are bringing together a bipartisan group of public and private leaders working to solve America's toughest problems. I'm Ryan Clancy, and this has been an episode of Gridlock Break, a No Labels podcast. <laughs>